Being a pastor's wife can be very challenging, and she can be a great blessing to both her husband and the congregation, as well as her own family. And so this story is dedicated to our pastor wives out there. So gather the family and enjoy this Christmas story. Like a Candle in the Window by Margaret E. Sangster, Jr. Greg lifted her tenderly across the threshold of the little gray stone house and held her tightly in his arms. Her clear blue eyes looked up into his, and then suddenly she buried her head in the fold of his arm and sobbed out, Oh, Gregory Carter, I love you. Love you with all my heart, but I wish I didn't. Well, Mrs. Carter, for a bride of two weeks, that is quite a statement. Would you mind telling me why you wish you didn't love your husband? All my life I've told myself, Joan, don't ever marry a preacher. Marry a lawyer, a farmer, a tailor, a baker. But don't ever marry a preacher. And here I am, married to you, the pastor of a church in a little mountain town a thousand miles from nowhere, and I want a husband, a husband all my own. Any complaints so far, smiled Gregory. You have had my entire and undivided attention for the past two weeks. I thought we had quite a honeymoon. Joan snuggled her head into the spot between Greg's ear and his collarbone. I've loved every minute of the past two weeks, but that is just it. For two weeks, I have had a wonderful husband who gave me his undivided love and attention. But now, for the rest of my life, I must share you with everybody, your whole congregation, and anyone who needs you. I'm tired of your people. They met us at the station and drove us from one end of the town to the other. My hand aches from being squeezed. I'm gummy from being kissed by women I've never seen before. Probably they're looking at us right now, staring through the windows, three or four of them in my kitchen, watching. I feel as if we would live in a glass house for the rest of our lives. There was a creak somewhere in the back of the house, and involuntarily Greg glanced back over his shoulder. Joan's sobs stopped abruptly. She dabbed at her eyes with a handkerchief and called, Come on out. Come out wherever you are. The hall door opened and they streamed in, laughing and calling, Welcome home. The senior deacon, the junior deacon, and their wives and children, the Dorcas and the choir. They were all there, and they had food, pies, cakes, and sandwiches. Greg went forward to greet them, and they gathered around him. They love Greg, thought Joan. He is their pastor. Oh, make me strong enough to accept them. And then suddenly she was angry. Greg's my husband. He belongs to me. It's our life, and we're going to live it. They left finally, and Joan sank down into the living room sofa. The room was a mess. Dirty cups and plates sticky with cake frosting, half-eaten sandwiches curling up at the edges. Greg said gently, The women will come back tomorrow. They'll clean everything up. But I don't want them to come back. I want to wash my own dishes and clean my own house. Greg laughed. You were an only child, darling. You've never learned to share. 
But Greg, you'll never belong entirely to me. I want a husband who goes to work at eight and comes home at five, and between five and eight will belong to me. I'll always belong to you, dear. We both belong to our Heavenly Father, and because we do, we belong to each other. You will find that love is like the widow's meal. The more you give, the more you have for yourself. Life in this secluded little community is hard and dull. And oh, my dear, we have so much to give. Our lives must be like a guiding star, like a candle in a window, to show those who pass by the way home. And so they settled down, the young Carters, Gregory Carter and his wife Joan, living indeed in a gold fish bowl in a small mountain village, living in a stone house separated from a stone church by twenty paces of snowy lawn. Greg preached fervently and honestly from the pulpit. He drove out into the country to call on the sick parishioners to perform marriage services and pray above opened graves. And Joan at home did her best to keep the parsonage shining, to cook meals that were nourishing and edible, and to think according to the pattern of her new life. She had an endless stream of callers, somebody every day, Mrs. Judson across the street, You say you were born in New York City? My, my, how you must miss the bright lights and all the goings-on. Nothing but God's mountains to look at here and Main Street. And Joan would murmur, It's a charming little town. That coat you wore to church last Sunday, honey, was it real mink or muskrat? Mink, Joan would nod. Daddy gave it to me when I was 18. Or Mrs. Temney, from around the corner, would drop in to help dry the dishes and exclaim, Land sakes, dearie, you don't use these fancy dishes every day, I hope. And Joan would answer, Yes, they were wedding gifts, and I like to use them. When Joan protested to her husband that she was tired of all the women giving her advice and prying into her own personal affairs, Greg answered, Darling, the city you came from is made up of many little islands, and on each island people live by and to themselves. But it's different when you live in a small town. It's all one island, and your common property. When they had been married for one month, Joan thought it called for a celebration, and baked a pie, her very first. It was lemon meringue, and it was beautiful. That evening she set the table with her best china and silver. She gathered flowers and placed them in the center of the table with a tall candle at either end. The table was beautiful and the dinner was delicious. Joan was thinking how wonderful to have an evening all to ourselves. She had just cleared the plates away and was going for her triumph, the lemon meringue pie, to set before her husband when there was a knock at the door. Answering, Greg heard, Good evening. Are you the minister, please? I am Tony, and this is Maria. We like to get married, please. Get married? asked Greg. Are you alone? Where are your families? Oh, please, we have no families. You see, I come five years ago from Italy. All the time I make the shoes. Every day I make a shoes, make a shoes, and save my money, till at last I have enough to bring Maria. She is the time waiting in the old country. And now, today, she comes. I got us the house ready. Oh, we are very happy. And now we like a get married, please. We have no family in this country. No mama, no papa, no brother, no sister. Just Maria and Tony, that's all. And now we like a get married. 
Too bad no family, but with flowers on the table and candles, just a like nice wedding. Greg hesitated, but if Maria has just come, she does not speak English. She will not understand the ceremony. Oh, no matter, answered Tony. You tell me, I tell Maria, we do okay. And so, with Joan as witness, the service proceeded, with Tony translating each vow carefully. And when at last Greg had pronounced them man and wife, Tony smiled at Joan and said hopefully, Maybe you be like a sister to Maria. She has only me, Tony, no mama, no sister in this country. And suddenly Joan remembered the lemon meringue pie. Four of the very best plates were placed on the table, and the china cups were filled with steaming chocolate, and the pie that was baked for just two became a wedding feast for four. Joan did try to be like a sister to Maria. Maria was a beautiful girl, gracious and charming, and Joan enjoyed taking her to the village market and helping her a bit to master the new language. She made it a point to see that she met the other young women in the congregation, and several times Tony and Maria were dinner guests at the parsonage. But Joan still found it very hard to accept Greg's people. Why can't we ever have a little time to ourselves? Why must the house always be filled with your people? She demanded of Greg. They aren't my people, darling, he answered. They are God's people, the sheep of his pasture. And it was God who sent us here to be the shepherd of his flock. And Joan had choked back the tears as she answered, Maybe he sent you. Oh, if only we had a home, a real home that was all ours. Why must we share everything with your people? Because, dear, I'm their pastor, and you're their pastor's wife. Whatever is ours must be theirs, too. The day Greg had promised to take Jones shopping in the city, 60 miles away, just as they were ready to leave, Nash Simpson had come in and said his oldest boy was determined to leave home, that with the summer planting and all, they needed him desperately, and besides, what would a boy his age do in the big city? Wouldn't Greg come over and talk to him? And Greg had gone and talked until it was too late to make the shopping trip. But he had persuaded the boy to stay and help his father until the harvest was over, and had promised that he would go with him in the fall to help him find work and a place to live in the city if he still wanted to go. The night Joan's sister and her husband had stopped to visit them on their way home from a business trip. They were just sitting down to dinner when the doctor called. Silas Wathers was badly hurt, nearly cut his leg off with a scythe. Wouldn't the pastor drive out with the doctor? And Greg had gone, and the sister had wondered how Joan managed, never being able to depend on having her husband at home. Joan had lifted her chin a bit and said, Oh, that is part of being a pastor's wife. But she had wondered herself how she stood it. When Mr. Carlton, the only wealthy member of the congregation, gave the church a new organ, Joan was the only one who could play it. So it was Joan who played for the choir, and this brought responsibilities and more people making demands of her, though she loved the music and devoted much time to planning the numbers for each service. Sarah Bradley had finished high school and was to go into the state college for the fall term. She appeared at Joan's door one morning with the catalog under her arm. Oh, Mrs. Carter, won't you help me choose my clothes? I want to look nice as the other girls at school. If you would just help me, you always look so nice. And Joan had spent the morning with her until the order was made, a dress for parties, a neat suit for church, skirts and blouses and sweaters for school. 
and Joan had contributed some little scarves and a dainty handkerchief herself. Sarah went home with a light heart, though Joan's ironing was still undone. Mrs. Carlton was here today, Joan announced at dinner, a week before Thanksgiving. She says we must have Thanksgiving with them. We must go there directly after the service. She paused, and then, But we're not going, Greg. I want to have this Thanksgiving alone with you. It will be our first Thanksgiving together, our last as bride and groom, and I want to cook our dinner. I want to serve it on my own dishes to my husband. Mr. Carlton is our greatest benefactor, said Greg. He's also our best friend. It was he, you know, who had the oil burner put in this parsonage. He gave the money for the organ. We'll have to go to his house for Thanksgiving, darling. They have extended the invitation to show their friendship and love for us. All right, Greg Carter, you may go and eat Thanksgiving with the Carltons, but I am staying home. I married you, not your congregation. It's you I love, not all your people. And so Greg told his senior deacon that Joan was not feeling well, that they would have to decline the invitation. But somehow the supper was not the success Joan had anticipated. And then suddenly it was the morning of Christmas Eve, and the sky was leaden gray. By noon it was snowing, and by late afternoon a blizzard was howling, and Mr. Carlton's gift, the oil burner, wasn't working the way it should. But in spite of the cold, Joan had decorated the room with the evergreen and holly berries Greg had brought in, and a bright little Christmas tree stood in the corner near the window. Oh, Greg, Joan said, Christmas is a wonderful time. And then the telephone rang. Darling, said Greg as he returned from the telephone, you remember old Mr. Murray? He's taken a turn for the worse. He may not live the night out. I must go to him. Through this blizzard, Joan asked. Greg nodded. And leave me alone on Christmas Eve? You'll be all right, darling. Remember, we have a lifetime ahead of us to spend Christmas together, and this is perhaps the last one on this earth for Mr. Murray. I must do what I can for him, dear. All right, but this is the last Christmas I'm spending here. I'm going home to my family in New York. How can anybody be happy married to an impersonal minister who belongs to everybody but his wife? So Greg kissed her, held her tightly for a moment, and then started out in his small elderly car. And as the white pencils of snow broke against his windshield, he prayed for a safe journey that he might bring strength and courage and faith to Mr. Murray, for Joan's protection and for their happiness. And Joan pressed her nose to the window pane and tried to see across a white world. Oh, Greg, Greg, you are so fine and good, but I want you all to myself. And as she looked, she saw a light coming toward her through the storm. She watched until a knock sounded at the door. Come in, she called, and turned to see Mrs. Tenney. She had come with a loaf of freshly baked bread, warm and fragrant. Oh, Mrs. Tenney, you came through the storm to bring this to us. My dear, I had to come. It's Christmas Eve, and I had to come and tell you how much you have done for me during the year. I hope you haven't minded me coming in so often just in time to dry your dishes. Somehow, as I have touched those sparkling glasses and dainty cups, it has made me want to keep my hands and heart clean and shining like them. It's made me realize that life isn't all just work and hardship. There is beauty all around us if we just look for it. 
You can't know what has meant to me to come to your parsonage here, so spotless and pretty. This isn't much, but I hope you'll enjoy it and know how much we love you. As Joan stood holding the warm loaf of bread, tears filled her eyes, but she wiped them quickly as a voice called out, Anybody home? It was Mrs. Judson from across the street. All alone? I thought as much. I knew about old Mr. Murray, and I figured the pastor'd be out there with him. Tain't exactly nice to spend Christmas Eve alone, so I just thought I'd run over for a few minutes. My, your house looks right Christmassy. But then this house always looks just the way a pastor's home should look. Neat as a pin, flowers here and there for a bit of cheer, and comfortable chairs just where they're needed most. I hope I haven't been a bother to you, but it always just sets my day out right to run over for just a minute or two. And I've said more than once, it's no wonder our pastor is such a success, always full of courage and cheer, with such a home to come to when his work is over. And your clothes seemed a mite extravagant at first, but more men had come home if their wives kept themselves prettied up and looked something worth coming home to. Oh yes, I've said many times, says I, our pastor's wife does her part and does it well. My, I might near forget, here's a pint of my strawberry preserves. I hope you'll like them. Sarah Bradley stopped by to show Joan how well her suit fit and to tell her how well she was getting on at college. Oh, Mrs. Carter, I don't know what I'd ever done without your help. The girls all like my clothes and they like me. Oh, I just love you, Mrs. Carter, and I hope I can be just like you someday. I think it would be just wonderful being a minister's wife. Everyone loves you so. Tony and Maria came through the snow to bring a beautiful scarf of dainty handwork. To say thank you for your kindness, said Maria in her broken English. You've been like my sister. And she stooped to kiss Joan's hand. And Tony added, in the spring comes a little bambino. And if it is a girl, we call her Joan. You think the name is good? It was Mr. Carlton who stopped next. He came in stamping the snow from his boots. Well, just stopped in to wish you a Merry Christmas. We won't ask you to spend Christmas with us. Figured maybe you'd like to be alone, beings this is your first Christmas together in your new home. I just had the oil tank filled and left a bushel of apples on the back step. I don't know what we'd do without you and the pastor, Mrs. Carter. You've done a lot for this community. Why, it seems like you've been a guiding star, like a candle set in a window, to show us poor folks the way. I reckon the pastor is out with old Mr. Murray. I figured he'd be there. Well, give him my greetings and don't forget to count on us for anything we can do. It was almost midnight when Joan heard the car turn in the driveway. She rushed to the door and opened it to light the way for Greg. Well, darling, I'm home in time for Christmas. Has it been dreadfully lonely? Has it been a terribly long evening for you? I've missed you, dear. But our people have seen to it that it was not long or lonely. The house has been filled with them. And who could be lonely when you are surrounded by love and kindness? When you belong to the whole community? Greg gathered her into his arms and carried her into the house. Oh, Greg, wouldn't it have been terrible if I had married some stuffed shirt of a polo player or some rising young executive? I love you, Greg Carter. Love you with all my heart. And I'm glad, glad, glad that I do. 
I wouldn't change places with anyone in this whole wide world. I'm going to write to my cousin Rosalie and thank her again for bringing us together. It was God who brought us together, dear. He had his eye on you all the time because he knew you'd make the perfect wife for the pastor of a little church in a little town a thousand miles from nowhere. The End Thank you.